This episode and all of our Sundance coverage is brought to you by Rode Microphones and My Rode Reel. The world's largest short film competition is back, bigger and better in 2017. Head to MyRoadReel.com to sign up now. Welcome to Indie Film Weekly, a no film school podcast. I'm Liz Nord. I am Emily Booter. I'm Oakley Anderson Moore. I'm John Fusco. It's January 26th, 2017, and on this week's show, we're bringing you our special Sundance episode from Park City, Utah, with the good, the bad, and the Russian hackery from America's biggest independent film festival. Everyone from Park City, Utah, where we've been for a week covering the Sundance Film Festival, and boy, do we have stories. As always, we're here to bring you everything you might have missed while you were busy working on film projects. And this week, the film industry has its eyes trained squarely on two places, the Sundance Film Festival and the Oscar nominations. So we're going to do the same and devote our entire show to those two topics instead of our regular format. Kicking right off with Sundance, as we usually do from the festivals, we like to kind of give you guys the lay of the land, let you know what, what's happening on the ground, what the festivals feel like, so that when your films inevitably get in, you can have some idea of what to expect. So, John, you want to start us off with some numbers, stats, mathy stuff, because you're good at math? Sure, here. Let me set the scene for you guys. <laughs> if um, you're going to do that, you should probably start talking about the snow. Well, yeah. Let me let me set the scene by talk about the snow a little bit first. So it's really snowy out. It hasn't stopped snowing for the past like five, six days that we've been here. Um, four feet in 48 hours. Four and Oakley, what'd you say about it being the biggest snowstorm? Yeah, the Dawn of the Deaf people on the way over here, the bus driver told them that it has not snowed this much in Park City since 1987. And we'll get more into like the repercussions of that later. But all that snow didn't stop people from coming to the big dance, as I like to call it. <laughs> There were 46,000 estimated, in fact, uh, including 1,977 volunteers. We have to thank the volunteers. Thank everybody. you, volunteers. Everybody. Yeah. Thank you. Especially in all that snow. Yeah, that was an incredible effort on all of their part, like having to stand out in that crazy blizzard while we were all comfortably inside theaters to make sure that we all got out of the theaters comfortably into our buses. That we got was, onto the right bus. Yep. It was very noble, and we can't thank them enough. Um, so there were 878 total festival screenings. Dang. And... All in all, there were another 71 panels and music events combined as well. So let me also paint the picture a little bit more here by telling you guys about the lay of the land, as some would call it. Um, there's Main Street, which is up kind of... Uh, the main thoroughfare. Yeah, it's like the main thoroughfare. It's Festival where, Central. Yeah, there's all these co-ops and sort of like studios for press to get their interviews done for the people to go to lodges there. Yep. For people to get their swag. Sponsors spend like thousands and thousands of dollars renting out the entire street. Yeah. And it's a, uh, it's a crazy place and it was made even more crazy by the fact that there were slush everywhere. Um, and it was packed this year. So keep in mind, we are in the mountains of Utah. And so everything is uphill at main street, which we spend most of our time on is basically vertical. And it was like a total like water slide this year. Yeah. And, um, Whenever there's like a celebrity that passes by on the street, there's crowds that also form around them. So we're running around trying to like get interviews with people and trying to get from place to place in the slush. And then maybe, you know, Al Gore will appear across the street or like right in front of us. And all of a sudden the entire sidewalk will stop walking. <laughs> so it's really, uh, it's kind of like New York in that sense where it's, it can be sort of brutal to get through at times. 
Um, but that's good news for Utah. They make about $72 million, almost $73 million every year from Sundance alone. Damn, and it's only a 10-day event. Yeah, so over the past five years, they've actually accumulated $392 million, $209,098. To the cent. So I they actually weren't cents included. But. No, no, I, I, I got I ran those numbers and it all checks out. I like to be precise. I know you like to round up. We've actually had this discussion on the podcast before. <laughs> um, one thing that I actually found interesting was that someone asked if uh, they would ever change the city Sundance took place in um, in the initial press conference that we had. And Redford didn't make any sort of uh, indication that it would happen, but I was in a bus with about a hundred other people in a tiny, tiny little bus. Um, again, I was used to it because New York City Transit is basically like this all the time. But some other uh, of the tourists were sweating to say the least. Um, I struck up a conversation with an attendee who suggested that, you know, if they're not going to change the location of the festival, they should maybe at least change the date of the festival uh, from January so that it's a little nicer out for people to get around. But that also brings up the fact that this takes a very important point in the festival cycle. It's sort of the first time we're exposed to any of these movies. So they can't really do that either. So it looks like Sundance will forever be a snowball place of... A snow globe. A snow globe. It looks pretty, but it is a bear to get around in. So the thing is that there's this main street, as we mentioned, but there are also 16 venues all around, not just in Park City, but in Salt Lake City. That's an hour drive away in this weather, if that makes like a two hour drive away. And they do run a shuttle system. And it's kind of cool because all the Park City buses are free. So we can jump on those. But with the weather and the slush and everything, um, I know I didn't really plan enough time. So there's your pro tip for, for when you all get here. Like you need an hour between screenings. I sort of expected it would be like other festivals where I could line up a day of screenings back to back with 20 minutes in between or whatever. Not the case here. One of the figures John dug up is that among those 16 venues, there are 22 screens. So all those 868 screenings, you know, only take place on 22 screens. It's a very highly choreographed event um, and kind of amazing in that way. But it's also funny because this is not a big city at all. It's a tiny little town. And so I think only two of those um, venues are actual movie theaters. It's kind of random. Like there are screenings in the library. There are screenings in the Doubletree Suites Hotel. There, Yeah, Sundance has built out infrastructure here for the festival to occur. And what about like the general vibe? How would you guys describe what it feels like to be here? This year has been really hectic, I think. Um, it's been kind of crazy. In talking with publicists, they agree too that it's just been a very strange year. Um, and I think that's because of a lot of the situation that's been surrounding the event in the outside world. Sundance has always been sort of this like bubble, at least like last year it was where, you know, everyone was here. They were just focused on film. It was really nice in that sense because you're in this community of filmmakers who really only care about one thing while they're here. And, um, it's, it's great for that as a sort of escape. But this year, um, that was kind of impossible, uh, because there's so much other stuff going around. Like, you know, uh, we have a new president that happened on Friday. Oh, yeah, that happened. Um, there was a, I mean, we'll get into more of the politics later, but 
there was a lot of intrusion from the outside world this year. And in that sense, I think uh, the festival also sort of became a little bit more progressive and politically minded um, to sort of match that tone. For sure. And we will talk more about that. But I I still felt that like camaraderie and like what you had described in, in what each of you and Oakley and John who've been here before had described in years past that like it feels like really feels like the film community is here and you're running into people you know and you're meeting new people in line and everybody's here because they love movies and that was such an uplifting feeling for me even despite all the shitty weather and all the kind of like weird turmoil that we'll get more into it kind of feels like mr rogers neighborhood walking down the street because there's like there's a person that you worked at at your last job there's your friend from college there's somebody you met last year at a different festival you know there's a friend of a friend it's a it's a really inclusive atmosphere i think that's definitely Emily's uh, impression because Emily knows pretty much everyone. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if I quite characterized it as Mr. Rogers, but <laughs> occasionally you see people you know, and it's it's like you know exciting to talk to people. For me in particular, I don't live in Brooklyn with you guys, so it's very rare that I get to be in this kind of epicenter of filmmakers and film types. So it's pretty exciting. All right, so that definitely is a segue to celebrity run-ins. You always hear about the celebrities at Sundance and like you see their pictures later, but I'm bad at recognizing celebrities anyway. And then here, everyone's totally wrapped up with hoods and scarves and hats. (laughs) Nonetheless, one of the situations I ran into, because if you guys haven't noticed yet, I'm a little nosy. I like to know what's going on with everybody. I shouldn't say nosy. I'm a journalist. Journal. (laughs) (laughs) But um, I heard this dude behind me um, in one of the lounges where I was for an interview talking about how he was going to be on next season of Fargo. So I assumed that it was this like young up and coming actor who was enthusiastic about his new role. And I like spun around and said, that's so cool. And I was face to face with Joaquin Phoenix, not an up and comer, but Wait, he was so going to be on Fargo. you said that to his face? You said, that's so cool. Yeah, like mid turn. I was like, hey, kid, like cool role. What, did oh. he, what was his response? <laughs> A polite chuckle. Oh, okay. <laughs> He's so a real a- ugly mustache right now. Oh, yeah. He Sorry, likes to Joaquin. hide behind facial hair. Oof. Anyway, and, and another one in the coat I recognized was just such a charming little image of Gina Davis walking down Main Street in the snow eating a big ice cream cone. That's amazing. Yeah. We had ice cream sister solidarity. It was nice. Did you cheers ice cream cones? Well, I was like, I'm glad I'm not the only one who was crazy enough to eat ice cream in this weather. Oh. That's great small talk. I like it. It was good. I also saw Gina Davis, but that it was in the context of, I was in the Pepsi Creators Lounge, which is a studio where um, publicists set up interviews for their talent. And that's where the press go. And there's like couches and it's all nice and set up for, you know, video or whatever sort of interview you want to have take place. Um, so I was in one of those lounges and Gina Davis was there. Uh, but I didn't really care about her at all because... Mark Hamill was also there. The previous day I had seen Brigsby Bear, which he is in, and then he did a Q&A uh, after that, and he was there. And uh, I'm not usually like the one to really approach any celebrity at all. I I don't know. It's not – I don't get starstruck really, um, I've, especially now after like interviewing. It's because you are a star. No, it's not. But it's because I don't know. I, I always want to treat people like they're, you know, people and not – like, oh, my God. Um, but I was totally unable to do that when I saw Mark Hamill in the Creator's Lounge. And I was, like, trying to think of how I could, like, ask him to take a picture or something with me or just, like, say hi. I, hi, Mark. <laughs> um, <laughs> hi, Mark. 
Did you offer to show him your lightsaber? I yeah. So I don't know. I just saw I just saw him in there and uh, asked. Uh, was like, hey, Mark, you're like kind of my hero. Can I take a picture with you? And I took a good hero, a good picture. And yeah, so that was cool. That was the best, the highlight of my uh, Sundance, I think. So awesome. Okay, I have two celebrity run-ins that are interesting. One of them occurred at the Women's March where I was indeed zero degrees from Kevin Bacon because he definitely touched my arm as he went by, not on purpose. (laughs) But it was cool to see that he was out there for women's solidarity, which we'll talk about a little bit later. On a similar note, directly after the Women's March, I was interviewing Teresa Palmer for her film Berlin Syndrome, which is here. And she had the most lady power moment where she brought her newborn baby into our interview and then breastfed him the entire time while she was talking to me. So it was kind of awesome. I mean, so totally like a unexpected. Boob run in. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, I don't know who's Teresa Palmer. She was in Hacksaw Ridge, which is an Oscar nominee actually this year. Uh, I saw Jason Isaacs. He's uh, plays the. You may know him from Harry Potter. He also plays the bad uh, scientist in the OA. I didn't say anything to him <laughs> when I saw him. He was being mobbed by people taking photographs, and I didn't have a good line like John, like, you're my hero, because I just, I, I think he's hey, cool, but I can't say that. So like, That just came to me, too. Yeah. So but, original. I know, see, that's the thing. Like, I never know how to approach a celebrity I like. I just feel like kind of like five minutes tool. Before, five minutes before that, like, I went up to Kyle Mooney, and I was like, hey, man, I, I really like your stuff. And he was like, thanks. Line. And I was like... I literally said to him, him, I was like, that's really all I have to say. (laughs) And he was like, well, you know, I appreciate that. Like, that was a good thing to say. Benny appreciates your candor. Okay. I'm going to say that next time I see (laughs) I feel like if someone's not your hero, then a good line is just like, hey, you're all right. Hey, man, I like your stuff. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Hey, man, I like your stuff. That's a good way to it. So anyone who sees a a celebrity on the street, there's some tips for you. Don't freak out. Things you learn from no film school. Keep it cool and tell them you like them. John referred to some of the like weird stuff that's been happening this year and like definitely some like creep factors and like who knows if it's the weather or whatever, you know, whatever's going on. Um, One of the like kind of shocking ones that a lot of people are talking about is that there um, were power outages. Remember I mentioned that there's only really one really proper movie theater. And so there was a multiplex that's a little out of the way, takes people a while to get there. So everyone's in their seats and in the middle of the the screenings, the power went out of the theater and the entire complex that it's in, like it's a whole kind of like mini mall thing and the traffic lights on the highway in front of that theater. It was like the whole section of the grid went down. It was creepy as hell, but also these poor filmmakers, I think we can all sympathize or empathize. Like, can you imagine you've been waiting for your Sundance premiere? It's happening and then conks out in the middle and they evacuated everyone from the theater, so there was no chance to like finish up. This is a theater that is pretty far outside of the main area where like most of the screenings take place. You have to take like a one single bus there, and it's probably like a twenty-five minute trip, whereas everything else is like maybe 10, 15 minute radius. Um, and I got out there, and I was supposed to see Kuso, which is the Flying Lotus movie that I actually mentioned last week as the one I was most anticipating, and um, it turned turns out that when I got there, the screening had been canceled and because the power was still out, it was out for like seven hours. And because of that, I wasn't able to interview Flying Lotus uh, at Sundance for a podcast. Such a shame for us and for you and for the artists who like lose these press opportunities. Yeah. And it wasn't just the power outages. There were also some pretty common technical difficulties pertaining to DCPs, um, especially one in a screening that I saw 
I really like this film. It was called The Berlin Syndrome. It was a thriller. Um, and it at the literal climax of the movie, it's a hostage story about a woman taken hostage by a man. Just as she's maybe about to escape, the screen goes blank. And oh. the DCP just cut out. Digital Everyone, cinema package, by the way, for yeah. those who don't know. So everyone gasped. We were left in the lurch for about five minutes. And then they brought on a DVD with a huge fat watermark on it Ooh. and very pixelated. And that had the sound cut out after about two minutes. No. Then they went to like scroll across the, the, um, the timeline to see if it would play later down the line. So I basically saw the rest of the film play out in stills. Holy um, and shit. a lot of people left because it was a great film. But once you knew what happened... You know, why would you stay? If I were the filmmaker, I'd almost rather just say forget it than have it play from a watermarked DVD. Sort of just like every filmmaker's worst nightmare. And if you've played at smaller festivals, it's something that actually like does happen when, you know, technical errors like that happen all the time. Uh, and so it's just like constantly something you always think about when you screen a film. Like, my God, I hope nothing terrible, catastrophic happens. In the last place, you would want to think that would be at your world premiere. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Not at the big dance. Don't yeah. expect that there. Sundance did try to do some makeup screenings. I know John went to one, but I, you said that one wasn't even that well attended. Yeah, well, it wasn't well attended. It was uh, 1030 the next day. And, you know, it's like your schedules are packed so tight here that it's hard to really make up for any of those. Like Flying Lotus was gone the next day when I, you know, so there was no way that we could reschedule that uh, interview. Um, and I'm sure the same thing could be said for many of the screenings that happened to be uh canceled on Sunday so for sure so the thing that caused the biggest ripples um outside of the power outages was another kind of creepy thing there was uh the festival was hacked on Saturday the 21st the second day of the fest the well the second full day of the festival um it was a cyber attack that caused network outages it shut down Sundance's box offices and even after the box offices were back up which was only about an hour there were a whole bunch of DDoS attacks on Sundance's IT infrastructure so there were rip there was a ripple effect for a long, long time. Some would say even throughout the whole festival. So the FBI is investigating, but word on the street is that the attack may have been a response to the film Icarus by Brian Fogel that premiered the previous day. Um, the film is an expose of the Russian government's sports doping scandal. And I mean, it sounds so kind of like far-fetched, but then with everything that's been going on, it's hard to know. The, the film's producer, Doug Blush, didn't deny the possibility. He He's not saying it's, you know... Out like, of the realm of out reason. Of the realm. Yeah. He, he told The Hollywood Reporter, quote, it does not paint a flattering picture of Russian President Vladimir Putin, end quote. But the thing is, there's so many other films and projects in the festival that could have pro provoked Russia or other hackers. I mean, there's several plausible conspiracy theories, including a couple films about hacking specifically and a VR project about hacking and a couple about Syria that are also critical of Russia. The filmmaker Yevgeny Afinivsky, who made Cries from Syria, one of the Syria films, is Russian himself, and he was skeptical. He basically was like, if it was Russia, they would have blown the whole system out. So, who knows? Russia goes big. As John said, these films and the whole situation surrounding Sundance did have a very kind of political feeling which was interesting because um, at the press conference that John referenced, Robert Redford basically explicitly said it's not 
a political festival. You wrote that one up, Emily. Yeah, um, it was really interesting. Um, It was the day before the inauguration, so it was on everyone's minds. And Robert Redford fielded a ton of questions about whether the programming was directly related to the Trump presidency. Um, And he basically denied it, saying that the festival is not inherently political. He said, quote, we don't occupy ourselves with politics per se. We stay focused on the stories being told by artists. That's our main drive, end quote. So he kept the emphasis on the artists and the stories. And he said that if politics happened to um, coincide with the narrative of the film that he liked, he would support the film. But it wasn't a it wasn't a driving factor. Also, the festival's programming suggested otherwise. An inconvenient sequel, Al Gore's climate change documentary and the sequel to An Inconvenient Truth, was the opening night film. Every section of the program contained explicitly political films. And I was at a bunch of them myself, and almost every Q&A had a moment that seemed to be ripped directly from C-SPAN. The discourse on the ground was basically the question, is every film a political film? And if I had to answer, I'd say absolutely. And, you know, as John also mentioned, we really... I think Sundance is off in this bubble. And frankly, it still was. I wasn't paying attention to every piece of the news from the outside. But a lot happened here that was addressing, you know, what was happening or what was happening outside of the festival was being addressed here. It was like a whole dialogue the entire time. The most sort of obvious example of which was the Women's March. Um, On Saturday, the 21st, as you all probably know, there were women's marches all over the world, over 600 of them. And we had our own little version here in Park City. This was organized by some from the creative community and some from the local community. And there was a Facebook invite inviting you to the March on Main, referring to the Main Street we talked about. And that invite had 4,000 RSVPs, which seemed like a big number. Then, according to local police counts, 8,000 people showed up. So twice the number of RSVPs, despite the fact that There was a major storm that morning, so people were marching in the snow, and people that were trying to come from Salt Lake City, some made it and some didn't. It took some people over four hours to drive here. They missed the entire thing. Um, The thing is, it's really not a big town, as I mentioned, so 8,000 people marching down Main Street really looked impressive. Now, I was on the sidelines filming with my little Osmo, um, and Oakley and Emily kind of joined the throng. Did you guys have kind of impressions from the ground? We got pretty emotional, I would say. <laughs> it was a lot of fun. I mean, it was just cool seeing so many people out there, and it wasn't just women, it was men and women, kids. And, you know, I love puns, so I loved seeing all the different clever signs people came up with. That was fun. And it was just a positive energy. And, you know, it's we, it's we it didn't even really feel political. I mean, it depends on your definition of the word, and I think that's why the press conference is controversial. I mean, like the word political, people just kind of use it to just dismiss something. And for me, the Women's March was just so much fun just to get out there and see people doing something positive. And, you know, there's funny jokes about the president, but overall, it's a positive feeling. That's, that was my impression. It was like, look how powerful we are as a group. And, you know, women in particular, you know, let's give women a chance to really gain equality, which, you know, we just don't really have. And for me, it was just like cool just being shoulder to shoulder with a bunch of random people and yeah, and then then taking pictures of them to give myself something to do. And I just want to clarify, I wasn't not there. I was I wasn't not there because I don't like women. I was not there because <laughs> I had to do an interview. So So there was a rally after the march that had some celebrity appearances, of course, because we are at Sundance. It was emceed by the 
late night host Chelsea Handler, but it also had a lot of direct ties to the festival, even though, again, the festival's not political. The festival was not a, you know, an explicit sponsor of the march. The thing is, this march literally went right through the center of Sundance. And so one of the most powerful speakers, I thought, was Jessica Williams of The Daily Show and my favorite podcast, other than this one, Two Dope Queens. And she's starring in her first feature film role here, which is called The Incredible Jessica James. Um, another speaker was 86-year-old labor leader and civil rights activist Dolores Huerta. Uh, there's a documentary about her in the festival, cleverly titled Dolores. And uh, the rally was capped off by a performance from the Baltimore-based high school step dance team called the Lethal Ladies of BLSYW, who are the subjects of the very buzzed-about Sundance documentary Step. Um, adding to what Oakley said before, I thought it was just really cool to see the film and sort of global creative community hand-in-hand hand with the local community in a really kind of positive thing that, to me, didn't feel against something um, it didn't feel even partisan. It felt more like, like we are women here as we're. Don't forget about us, world. You know, we're here. We're not going away. And we're going to hold leadership accountable. So one of the ways that Sundance is different from other festivals, and as John mentioned, it kind of kicks off the year, is that this is one of the few in the States, at least, where lots of acquisitions happen um, and real business happens. So Emily has kind of been paying attention to the acquisitions from this year's festival so far. Do you want to fill us in? Yep. Here's my new radio show. It's called The Bottom Line. It's acquisitions and films that are getting buzz at Sundance. So here's the bottom line. Stream. <laughs> what? <laughs> I can't uh, wait. <laughs> when did this get approved? <laughs> it did not get approved. I went rogue. <laughs> <laughs> Streaming services, Netflix and Amazon cleaned up at Sundance this year. And I mean cleaned up. Together, they bought more films than all of the distributors combined. Um, John, actually want to jump us off with Amazon. Is your show done already or am I a part of the show? <laughs> no, you know, just a commercial break for your, your segment. Okay, What's well, the bottom line, John? <laughs> the, the bottom line is that I wanted to see this movie called The Big Sick and I even had a ticket for it. But, you know, I missed it. Because I didn't get an interview for it, and it's it's just too bad. But that movie, The Big Sick, was bought by Amazon Studios. Uh, and it was actually this year's biggest festival buy so far, I think. Uh, they acquired it for $12 million. Um, last year, Amazon bought Manchester by the Sea uh, at Sundance, and it paid $10 million for that movie. And that seems like a pretty good buy, uh, the way that you know Casey Affleck has been taking the award season by storm. It was directed by Michael Showalter, produced by Judd Apatow. Apatow. Thank you, Emily. Great job on your show so far. <laughs> and it stars Kumail Nanjiani, Zoe Kazan, Holly Hunter, Ray Romano, and others. And this movie is special because it was written by Kumail and his wife, Emily Gordon. And it's kind of like a retelling of how they actually met and fell in love uh, and got married eventually. So that story is really actually worth $12 million. Uh, Kumail's traditional Muslim family were unhappy with his relationship with Emily, who is American. But when Emily got really sick, uh, Kumail had to kind of join for forces with her parents to take care of her. And uh, in that moment, you know, I think they fell in love. I think they did, too. Yeah, Amazon also picked up Jillian Robespierre's Landline and Amir Barlev's documentary Long St Strange Trip. Thank you, Liz and John, for your generous reporting from Park City. Now back to the bottom line. <laughs> <laughs> 
Netflix was the biggest acquisition player this year at the Sundance Film Festival. At the time of this recording, it had just bought the anorexia drama to the bone for $8 million. And it also bought the incredible film Nobody Speak about the downfall of Gawker by the hands of billionaire Peter Thiel. It also bought uh, the incredible Jessica James, which we mentioned earlier, and casting John Bonet, Berlin Syndrome, previously mentioned as well, Chasing Coral, which Oakley saw, Fun Mom Dinner, Joshua, Teenager versus Superpower, Icarus, also mentioned earlier, I Don't Feel at Home in This World Anymore, and The Discovery. Fox Searchlight was also a big player at the festival this year. It outbid Lionsgate and Neon in a huge bidding war for Patty Cakes, which it bought for $10.5 million, which is pretty incredible considering it's a, it's a story that stars um, relative unknowns. I think there's one person who had previously acted before in the ensemble cast. It's about a hip-hop star from New Jersey, and it received two standing ovations at both its public screenings. Um, and interestingly, the, the film has producers in common with another historical Sundance breakout, Beasts of the Southern Wild, which Sur Searchlight also bought at Sundance back in 2012. So Searchlight also bought Step, which made film critics and inter industry veterans cry at the press and industry screening. It's about a girls' high school step dance team in inner city Baltimore. And it was really good to, for me to see Searchlight back on its feet after its last year's ill-advised acquisition of Birth of a Nation, which the company bought at Sundance for $17.5 million. That was another historic buy, one of the biggest Sundance deals ever. Of course, due to the highly publicized rape allegations against director Nate Parker, the film essentially received a box office death sentence. Speaking of death, A24 bought A Ghost Story and Toru, two science fiction films. And I'm honestly surprised that A24 didn't buy more movies. They're usually one of the biggest players um, in this space, but they did actually um, recently expand into production. They were behind Moonlight, if you didn't know. So I'm sure they've been busy building from within. Um, some other quick rundown of festival buys. Focus Features bought Thoroughbred for $5 million. Bleecker Street bought Nostalgia. Paramount bought an inconvenient sequel, HBO bought Cries from Syria, and Sony Pictures Classics bought Call Me By Your Name, which was a huge hit this year. So despite all of the buys this year, pretty healthy marketplace, there are actually a couple films that are still up for grabs. Um, one of the most notable titles that has not yet been bought includes D. Reese's Mudbound, which is a... I think it's a post-Civil War story, and it's poised to emerge as a serious awards contender this fall should someone buy it. It's received unanimous praise throughout the festival, and it's unlikely the film will leave Park City unsold. Also, Matt Heineman's City of Ghosts, his second documentary after the Oscar-nominated Cartel Land, is up for grabs as well. So besides acquisitions, another big event here in the distribution world was Amazon's Film Festival Stars program. And no, this is not a reality TV series designed to showcase directors' weirdest dance moves, although I'm sure John would love it to be the case. Um, and I kind of wish it was too. I hate <laughs> this show. <laughs> Emily, what's the bottom the line? bottom line is canceled. The bottom <laughs> Here's what it is. The bottom line, Amazon has given Sundance filmmakers incentives, basically, to race to their streaming VOD window. It's offering a one-time publishing non-recoupable bonus of up to $100,000 to festival films, plus double royalty rates for each stream on Amazon Prime. Reporting on the offer, our writer Christopher Boone questioned whether this deal was ultimately sustainable for Sundance filmmakers because most of these filmmakers made their movies on a budget of at least 10 times what Amazon is prepared to offer, and they may be foregoing other more lucrative distribution opportunities. 
This episode and all of our Sundance coverage is brought to you by Rode Microphones, 100% Australian-owned and made professional microphones for studio and broadcast, and My Rode Reel, the world's largest short film competition. Now in its fourth year running with over 500,000 in prizes given away so far, My Road Reel is back, bigger and better in 2017. More films, new judges, and more prizes. To view past winners and register for 2017, head to MyRoadReel.com and sign up now. So of course, many films haven't been acquired yet, but these, you know, what happens at Sundance is what sets the course of festivals and um, film conversations for the whole entire year. So our main activities here are seeing films and then talking to filmmakers about them. And this comes to what I think is the really fun part of the show is talking about the films we saw and loved or that made an impression that might stay with us for a while. So I would love to hear from everybody, starting with Oakley Anderson Moore. Well, I saw so many good films. Uh, it's hard to really pick one, but there was a film that I saw that just completely took me by surprise, and uh, I hadn't heard anything about it ahead of time. It's called Don't Swallow My Heart, Alligator Girl. It's a Brazilian film. The director's name is Felipe Burganza, and he'd done a couple of uh, experimental features and shorts, and this is his first solo debut feature. It was just really a wonderful film. It's sort of like on the vein of a South American magical realism it's set on the border of Brazil and Paraguay, and they have a sort of very bloody, contentious history. And he takes sort of the historical precedent of, of race relations there and mixes them up into this sort of otherworldly, not quite realistic, not quite dreamlike place, all helmed by like a love story between a Brazilian and Paraguayan like teenage kids. I mean, it's just fantastic. I can't stop thinking about it. And uh, the director and his producer are... are seem to be really talented. I can't wait to see what they do after this. Can't wait to see the movie. Actually, the film that I chose is the, my most kind of impression-making is the film called Gook, which I don't even like to say because it's a slur, but it is the name of the film. Um, and it also deals with race relations in like a very imaginative, um, unexpected way. Uh, it was actually <clears throat> the only film in the festival directed by an Asian-American, as far as I know. Uh, it was directed written and starring Justin Chan. If you recognize the name, it might be from Twilight, the Twilight series. He was the Asian kid, Eric. Um, anyway, so, you know, I didn't have huge high hopes for this film. It was kind of like, oh, that might be interesting, but who knows? You know, this kid has like a YouTube channel and it's kind of like, like shallow and fun. It actually was like such a fresh voice, a fresh take. It was shot in black and white. It was um, shot in La Los Angeles during the Rodney King beatings. And it was about basically a friendship between two 20-something uh, children of Korean immigrants and a young African-American girl, kind of an unlikely friendship and also just a whole unlikely take. And there also was a bit of a magical realism thing going on because similar to some other recent films by filmmakers like Alma Harrell and Lily Baldwin, there were some kind of random choreography in the middle of a traditional narrative. So the characters would, in certain circumstances, just break into dance, but not in a musical theater kind of over the top way, more in like a some kind of way that felt seamless and organic and really beautiful. Like they just were suddenly expressing themselves. Was it like a catharsis kind dance? of? Kind of, yeah. And it was just like emotional, powerful, funny. It had all the things. People around me were crying. I mean, it's not like anything I've ever seen before. 
And I got to interview Chan and his DP, Auntie Chang, who has a really cool story because um, this was just like a kid at USC film school and the director saw his student short at the LA Film Festival and asked him to come shoot his feature. And then I recruited him for our DP podcast that Oakley put together and hosted. So you'll be hearing a lot more about this film and some of the kind of interesting cinematic choices that they made. So yeah, I think race was another big um, theme this year at uh, Sundance. And, and I think that as far as the movie that made the biggest impression on me, it was Who Streets, uh, directed by Sabah Foleon and Damon Davis. And I did a podcast with them that came out on Monday, so I'm not going to talk a lot about it here. I'm just going to say you should listen to that podcast because it's really, um, I, it was a very special podcast for me. And um, I think it was for them too. Uh and yeah, it was definitely a movie that left a lasting impression on me. So and I think it, I think it would leave a lasting impression on anyone. Uh, it's about the Ferguson protests and sort of the, uh, community that, uh, built around the tragedy that happened to Michael Brown. That being said, I saw a movie called Bushwick, um, which also struck close to home because I used to live in Bushwick. And uh, I currently live in Bushwick. Emily currently lives in Bushwick. The film was directed by Jonathan Milo and Carrie Murnian, who also directed the movie Cooties. This is their second feature. Uh, it's <laughs> also came at a very appropriate time um, in that the movie is about... Uh, Texas, Louisiana, and Tennessee, and some other southern states abruptly deciding to secede from the United States and immediately starting an insurgency on America, starting in Bushwick. Uh, So basically, it's this crazy action movie that's kind of made to look as if it's all shot in one take. Um, and it starts off at a subway station in Greenpoint, and then they get off, and uh, they get off in Bushwick, and there's just like immediately like war everywhere. And uh, so it's just really, it was just, it's a crazy movie. Um, You know, it's not really one of the more artistic movies to come out of Sundance, uh, but it was really fun to watch. It was a midnight movie. Dave Bautista is in it. The guy who plays uh, Drax Drax in Guardians of the Galaxy, the former MMA fighter. Uh, And it's, yeah, it's really a crazy movie. So I think it'll, I think you'll have a chance to see it somewhere. Uh, Check it out. It's fun. And lucky for me, my personal favorite was also my number one most anticipated film this year. It's Taylor Sheridan's um, directorial debut. He is really successful as a screen as a screenwriter. He wrote Hell or High Water, which is nominated for an Oscar for Best Original Screenplay. And he also wrote Sicario. And right now he's working on actually a sequel to Sicario. Um, he is really incredible at um, capturing the American frontier. So he's kind of painted these three films as a trilogy of the American frontier. This one's called Wind River. Um, and to follow along the footsteps of your guys's, um, films about race relations and minorities, this is actually about native American reservations and, um, a murder happens on a reservation. Nobody can figure out who did it. And an FBI agent played by Elizabeth Olsen gets sent from Las Vegas to investigate the murder and teams up with a game tracker played by Jeremy Renner in a really astounding performance from him. That's like nothing you've ever seen from the actor. 
Um, the story is really sensitively realized. Sheridan had a lot of friends that grew up on this particular reservation. He utilized a lot of Native American actors and the, the uh, issues and obstacles that face the people on the reservation are pretty prevalent on every single reservation. It's a really sad story. It's really dramatic. It's really beautiful. And it moved me quite deeply. So, of course, all of these screenings, what, one of the best parts about being at a festival is that all the screenings have post-screening Q&A sessions where we get to hear from the directors and often the cast and other uh, below-the-line people. So, do you guys have any cool Q&A anecdotes? Uh, I watched The New Radical, and that had sort of an interesting experience in the Q&A. The film um, is by Adam Balalo, and uh, it's about a couple different figures in sort of the free speech, free internet, kind of open source movement. Uh, One particular guy that the film focuses on, Cody Wilson, he's most well known for uh, being the guy that released the plans to the 3D 3D printed gun. Um, So he's sort of a controversial figure. And he has kind of a controversial personality. Um, And the film is, is pretty interesting. It goes through a lot of different ideas and it kind of goes back and forth between libertarian philosophies, anarchist philosophies, lots of interesting stuff. And the Q&A was like kind of tough to sit through because the the audience was, it felt very polarized. I mean, we were talking about what it's like to be at Sundance at this point. And it's kind of like, well, what's like to be anywhere in America? Like, it's hard right now to talk to people about ideas because people are in my, it, it seems like people are very polarized. So I was listening simultaneously to people react during the movie, um, at one end of the audience, a certain group would cheer at a certain point, while the another group for the same point would be hissing. There was like someone audibly hissing. Wow. And so the Q&A, um, you know, it could have been a really great chance for people to actually talk about things, but it, it really wasn't. And I think that's just like something that I'm interested in about filmmaking and how can we actually have discussions about these ideas, like general ideological differences that we have in a constructive way. And it's something that I think is hard. And the Q&A was just very awkward because people didn't really ask a question. Somebody, either they asked a question that, that was kind of fed right into what, um, you know, the movie said, like they were pro that, or they asked a question that was against that. And it was like trying to take the people down. And so it was just strange. And people in the audience after the screening, I heard, I heard two people get into sort of an argument behind me because one person was saying, that guy's an idiot. And the other guy said, hey, we're not all idiots. And just it was this very tense experience. And I thought it sort of like reflected sort of some problems we're having in our culture at large that filmmaking could be looking into, which is how do we have actual discussions about ideas without just getting into shouting arguments? Yeah, I had a little bit of a, a controversial Q&A too, and not in a way that I would have expected because the film wasn't controversial per se, although it was kind of provocative. It was the the second Sundance feature and third Sundance film. The first one was a short by director Eliza Hitman, and it's called Beach Rats. And it's, it's a teen um, film that deals with a lot of issues, but it's really just about like, it's a coming of age film about kids in, in, South Brooklyn, one of the still working class neighborhoods in Brooklyn, which is an increasingly, you know, an area where working class families increasingly can't afford to stay. And she was kind of exploring that culture of the the working class um, in Brooklyn. And the interesting twist is that the lead character, the protagonist is gay or figuring out whether or not he's gay. And it's like, 
you know, I feel like there's kind of an assumption that young people today are like all cool with everything and more open-minded than in, in past decades. And it's probably true overall, but in this particular working class neighborhood, it's just like, it's not a thing. People don't come out, you know, and this guy is like a dude. He's got these dude friends. In the meanwhile, like he's creeping on the low and having lots of very graphic gay sex. So it's it's a really interesting, complicated story, actually. Um, what surprised me is that the first commenter stood up and during the Q&A, and I don't know if you guys have had this experience before, but sometimes one commenter can kind of poison the well. And this happened in this way. The guy stood up and he said, I'm, I'm gay, and this film made me really angry. I feel like it's just, you know, um, another one of these portrayals of gay people. He didn't really explain what he meant by that. And and I actually didn't find it a cliche portrayal. So I don't even really know what he meant, but he said it out loud. He's like, I'm really angry. And, um, and then that sort of like in Oakley's experience, the whole Q and a session really became like this debate about whether or not this film was appropriate, like an appropriate portrayal of homosexuality and several, um, Gay men stood up and said, like, I liked it or I didn't like it for whatever reason. Then um, I it was just I have to say what, what struck me the most about the whole thing is that I thought the filmmaker Eliza Hitman handled it really, really well. And that's not an easy situation. You know, we've all or most of us have been there. You're up in front of an audience and, you know, there might be a moderator from the festival, but they don't necessarily know how to step in and do anything. And she was just very, very measured. I was actually really impressed with the sort of sympathy and empathy that she displayed with her um, audience, because I think the tendency would be to get defensive and say like, yo, I mean, even for me in the audience, my feeling was like, hey, you know, almost every film that's ever been made about a woman has been made by a man. And that doesn't mean that every single one is an inaccurate portrayal, whereas this guy's point was basically like, you're not a gay man. How dare you tell my story? And yeah, I think Eliza basically was like, this is a filmmaker's job to like be empathetic and and find out other people's stories and help tell them. So at the jury's out, and I'll be curious what the general reaction from the gay community and beyond is to the film. And for me, one of the most interesting Q&A experiences um, has a lot to do with the makeup of the audience. Um, So it's one thing to see a festival in Toronto or New York where there's the festival and industry insiders and then there's like metropolitan city folk that like would go to see these movies anyway. But in Park City, it's a different story because a lot of people from all over Utah flock to Park City for the festival. So a lot of different viewpoints and backgrounds and interests represented. I saw a very interesting film, um, Julian Rosefeld's Manifesto. He is an artist by trade. He He's a German artist. He has exhibited all around the world. He does a lot of video art and um, and visual art. And this film basically had him um, put Kate Blanchett in 13 different characters and different settings, acting out manifestos from art history. Um, and she literally reads them. So she embodies a character, a very specific one, um, and then reads them out loud. And a lot of these are very obscure surreal texts like I don't know if you guys know about Dadaism but that was one of the texts and it that is one of the the weirdest movements in art history I think um so the whole film was built around absurdity and juxtaposition of you know many elements that wouldn't organically come together 
I thought it was really funny. A lot of people thought it was really funny. Is it supposed to be funny? It doesn't sound funny. It, it's a, it's funny because it's absurd. You know how the lobster is absurd in um, th- that kind of absurd comedy is what emerges from it. It's also really intellectual. So there's that. But it, it's, 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 it's funny. I mean, Kate Blanchett is really earnest and um, she does a great job. But not everyone liked it. <laughs> there was a woman from Park City sitting right next to me. And about five minutes into the film, she stands up and projects to the audience, this is weird, (laughs) and then proceeds to walk out. And I think that that sentiment was shared by quite a few festival goers. So needless to say, the Q&A was very interesting and reflected (laughs) these different, you know, these different opinions about the movie. So now that you know about some possible Oscar contenders for next year, as promised, we won't let you go without a little news from this year's big awards since the official nominees were announced on Tuesday. La La Land absolutely dominated with 14 nominations, a tie with Titanic and All About Eve for the most nominations in Academy Award history. Goes to show you how much Hollywood loves itself. And uh, as we've predicted on past shows, I'm happy to report that the Oscars So White hashtag may have to be changed to Oscars Slightly Less White this year. Six black actors are nominated, the most ever, and one black director, Barry Jenkins for Moonlight, who also made a little history by being the first African-American nominated not only for Best Picture and Best Director, but Best Screenplay, Triple Threat. The lineup also features... Wait, I can also, Bradford Young is also the first uh, black cinematographer to be nominated for best cinematography that's so awesome and i think he was like my favorite interview from last year so so happy for him um the lineup also features exactly zero female directors and there's still a big lack of representation throughout all the categories of people of asian or latino descent but we'll take progress where we get it the documentary category is actually dominated by black filmmakers this year having directed four out of the five nominated docs and the subject matter in some of the honored films actually takes race head on. So it's not just the directors like Ava DuVernay's 13th and Raul Peck's I'm Not Your Negro both deal with race issues in America. And in good news for the subject of this podcast, indie films, or at least those made like outside the Hollywood studio system that might still have big budgets, really took over the majority of the slots for Best Picture nominees. In addition to Moonlight, Denis Villeneuve's Arrival, which Bradford Young shot, Casey Affleck's Manchester by the Sea, which we mentioned premiered at Sundance last year, and Garth Davis's Lion, and of course La La Land are all on the list in the kind of indie-leaning oeuvre. <laughs> a good word. Um, We also have a bunch of cool Oscar-related stories, including 12 tips from the shortlisted directors for the 2017 Oscars live action shorts on nofilmschool.com. So before we let you go, it's important. We already thanked the volunteers at Sundance. We have to thank our own people. I have to give a huge, huge shout out and thank you to Chris Boone, who is a longtime No Film School writer, a filmmaker whose film Sense was released this year. And he... Uh, was pinch hitter. He was our guest editor for the entire Sundance Film Festival. And he really, really made it possible for us to be here and get all the coverage that we got. Um, And also V. Renee, our nights and weekends editor, who stepped in and helped out with social media and and went above and beyond to help Chris kind of get through the week. So thank you guys so, so, so much. Um, we'll continue putting up Sundance coverage through next week. We've got we're gonna have lots and lots, probably about fifty pieces in the end. Um, and podcast interviews from Sundance will be going up for the next couple months. So please check all of it out on nofilmschool.com. You can read all that 
and more about the craft of filmmaking on the site. And please, please subscribe to the No Film School podcast and rate us on iTunes. Obviously, only if you're going to give us five stars, which you are. And stay in touch. I'm at Liz Film on Twitter. I'm at El Booter on Twitter. And you can check out the bottom line <laughs> online on YouTube and my yeah. YouTube channel, which does not exist. <laughs> you All can't, right. actually. <laughs> the bottom line is you can't. <laughs> I'm at, uh, at Oaks Wagon. Oaks Wagon. Wherever the Oaks Wagon will go. <laughs> I'm at Jim underscore. Wait, is that your? What is it? That's my Twitter handle. <laughs> is it? Is it? It's whatever? not Volkswagen. It's Oakswagon. Oh, it's Oakswagon. Not wherever, but it's not wherever the Oakswagon. <laughs> it's so folksy. That's her Twitter tagline. Yeah, that's my tagline. Oh, okay, that's your tagline. I got you. My uh, Twitter name is Jim underscore John underscore Jim. This happens every week, ugly. And we're all on Twitter at No Film School. See you next week from Brooklyn. 